It's been a tradition in American politics for more than a century. The political parties hold their conventions every four years, and before nominating a candidate for president, they adopt a platform that outlines where they stand on the issues of the day and the message they want to present to the American public. But the Republican Party is now broken with that tradition. In a remarkable statement that it released on the eve of its 2020 convention, the Republican National Committee revealed that it would forego adopting a platform this year entirely. It would be too difficult for the delegates to debate and vote on one given the COVID epidemic, the party said. So instead, the Republican Party simply reaffirmed what has been clear for some time. The RNC, quote, enthusiastically supports President Trump, the statement read, and, quote, continues to reject the policy positions of the Obama-Biden administration, as well as those espoused by the Democratic National Committee. In short, the Republican Party has now officially become what its sharpest critics have long said. The GOP is simply the party of Donald Trump. Nothing more, nothing less. Principles and positions be damned. We'll discuss the GOP's disappearing platform with veteran Republican strategist and Trump critic Rick Tyler. And we'll check in with Yahoo News medical consultant Dr. Kavita Patel about the president's surprise announcement Sunday that the FBA had approved an emergency authorization of convalescent plasma to treat COVID-19 on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we have talked for some time now, for months, about how this year is different from all other years. The political conventions have become virtual instead of real due to COVID-19. But I got to say, I did not see this coming, that the Republicans would simply drop the whole idea of adopting a platform that outlines where it stands. So these uh, convention platforms are not binding documents. They are a statement of policy positions and principles. And the Republican Party, I guess, has now stated that its overriding, overarching principle is loyalty to Donald Trump. And that is astonishing. And I think it does kind of make the point that Rick Tyler, our next guest, uh, makes in his new book, uh, Still Right. So it is a perfect setup for that interview. We we should point out that this, you know, inevitably grows out of and reminds us of what happened four years ago when uh, the Republican Party was having its convention. The platform committee was meeting and one of the delegates in Texas introduced an amendment that would have the party stand for arming the Ukrainian resistance to Russian aggression. 
And uh, Trump's uh, handlers at the uh, platform committee saw that, freaked out, was they feared that it would undercut the uh, clear preference for the then candidate Trump to uh, cozy up to Vladimir Putin and avoid criticizing him. So that amendment got eliminated from the platform. It produced a huge controversy, fueled the whole debate about Russia and its influence with the Trump campaign. And, um, you know, I think that uh, although the party blamed COVID-19 for its failure to do a platform this time, you can't help but wondering if they just feared that there would be some delegates out there who might stray from absolute loyalty and fealty to everything Donald Trump says and has done that uh, in order to avoid any potential embarrassment or undercutting of their dear leader, uh, they decided to take this route of foregoing a platform in time. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. They may have just decided to preemptively shut it down to enforce the perception of total unity and loyalty to uh, Donald Trump. But I'm curious, you know, we watched the Democratic National Convention, this virtual convention, unconventional convention and broke it down on multiple podcasts and interviews. What are you looking for in the Republican convention that starts tonight? Well, you know, let's see if they're any slicker about uh, producing their videos than the Democrats were. I thought the Democrats were okay for the most part. There were a few glitches, a few that didn't uh, work out as well. But, uh, you know, overall, they it seems they had a successful convention and it culminated with a pretty strong speech by Biden. Now, they're going to be abandoning another tradition, which is that the candidate nominated only speaks on the last night. This is Donald Trump. So, of course, he's going to speak every night because what else is there? What other reason could this convention have but then simply to give Donald Trump more face time, more opportunity to be slavishly praised and, of course, uh, talk to his peeps? But, I, you know, look, we'll see. The most recent polls, what is it? Uh, CBS had uh, Biden up 10 points after the convention last week. If Trump shaves that by um, a few points, this race could look more competitive than it has until now. But um, we'll see. I, I would say a lot is riding on this for Trump because he's he needs some bounce coming out of this to make this a real competitive race. But the only way I see him doing that is by expanding his his base. I mean, we know he's got that hardcore 41, 42 percent of totally committed MAGA Trump voters. And at a convention, uh, you have an opportunity to talk to a much bigger audience and maybe peel off some independents, you know, or some Republican voters who had we'll turned see. against him. And I think that's I'm, I'm just I don't think that's particularly likely. And the other point is, I mean, Actually, our poll just come out and it didn't show that Biden got any bounce at all. He's still at 11 points up, which is what he was 
in the poll right before the convention started. But some of the internals are better for Biden. His approvals have gone up a little bit. You know, I I think we're living in an age where you just don't see the kind of fluctuations that we used to see back in the day of like Dukakis when he was up by 17 points and then 18 points and and then ended up losing to George H.W. Bush. Look, um, I think it's pretty clear what the Republican play here is. And we heard it from Debbie Dingell in our uh, podcast last week during the Democratic convention. And that is the concern to highlight and emphasize the spike in violence in major American cities and the attacks on law enforcement and those aspects of the protests that have turned violence. Uh, now, the problem for Trump and the Republicans, and this is more than a problem for Trump and the Republicans, it's a problem for the country, is we keep having these videos surface of police brutality towards African-Americans. And you had that pretty jarring video last night in Wisconsin of the police officers shooting the guy in the back as he was getting into a car. That's probably the worst possible thing for Trump and the Republicans to have that come out on the eve of the convention, because it's clear they wanted to switch the conversation away from Black Lives Matter to violence in the streets, attacks on law enforcement. And that video is only going to inflame people more about the continued instances of brutality towards uh, minorities by police departments. So I I think that was, um, you know, as much as Trump wanted to usher in his convention with that uh, convalescent plasma announcement on Sunday, which we're going to talk to Dr. Kavita Patel about in a moment, that could well be overshadowed by uh, this new video. But anyway, we have uh, Dr. Patel on. She is our go-to person for all things COVID. So let's get her insights into that, and then we can move on to Rick Tyler and the Republican convention. We are now joined by Dr. Kavita Patel, former Obama administration public health official and Yahoo News medical contributor. Kavita, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks so much, Mike. Glad to be back. So the president announced on Sunday that there's been a major significant breakthrough in the fight against COVID. The FDA has given emergency authorization for convalescent plasma to treat COVID-19 patients. The president says this is a powerful therapy that has had an incredible rate of success. Do you agree? Yes and no. I think what's hard about this is that it was touted, you know, a special Sunday night press conference with uh, the press secretary sending out this, you know, kind of tantalizing tweet about what, quote unquote, would be a breakthrough treatment for the China virus. So, So I disagree with this aspect of characterizing it as some miracle. And the timing also, we can get into that a little bit perhaps, but timing it on the eve of the RNC is no shock to me, but that also creates this whole chain of what's the politicization of the FDA's implications for the treatment of COVID-19. Well, the president has been implying that the deep staters over at the FDA have been dragging their heels to help uh, Joe Biden get elected. But putting that aside for a minute, why don't you explain 
a little bit about the FDA approval process uh, for a therapy like this. We are in a, you know, national emergency. I mean, close to 175,000 Americans have died. Why have we've been talking about plasma therapy um, for some months now? Why has it taken as long as it has taken for FDA approval? What is that process? Yeah, yeah. So let me just kind of very briefly tell you what the normal non-pandemic process is, very simply. It's a five-step process. Like a company has to, you know, apply and seek FDA approval, and then they have to go through various levels of approvals from the FDA, everything from discovery, something novel, preclinical research, clinical research, and then more intensive FDA review of data, and then what we call post-market safety monitoring. That's for drugs that you and I can get at pharmacies and over-the-counter, and we still have FDA monitoring of that. That's a typical process. What we're talking about, and just also most of, I think, the public doesn't understand, is something called the emergency use authorization process, which is, people kind of think that that's only been done during um, public health emergencies. That's not true. But it basically creates a mechanism for the FDA to actually accelerate, not an approval, but it basically allows for kind of a temporary approval for something that I you know, had described that five-step process. You just can't wait for the timing on. So you facilitate Normally it happens during public health emergencies. There have been cases outside of public health emergencies where we've had emergency use authorization. And it really does help to accelerate or give people a way to use a drug outside of something called expanded access, which is used for people who have no choice and need a treatment. Um, and so it's a mechanism kind of in between. I describe it as a little bit of like the in-between phase of an emergency, uh, you know, you're a patient and you're dying and you need something. And then there's an FDA-approved drug that your doctor can write a prescription for, and you just go to CVS and, and fill. So that's, that's what the entire, by the way, the emergency use authorization is what we've had pretty much for all drugs, including remdesivir, the other treatment that we've been talking about for the coronavirus that was issued several months ago. Kavita, just explain what this therapy is. These are antibodies taken from COVID patients who have recovered. And the idea is that I'd like to have you explain this rather than myself. You know, why does that work on treating new COVID patients? Yeah. So this is, I know people shouldn't really understand what convalescent plasma means, but plasma is the part of your blood, if you've ever, when you go to the doctor's office and they take blood and they put it through those little spinners, those centrifuge machines that spin rapidly, you get a little tube and it separates the dark, dark, dark red part of the blood and what looks like a yellow, almost egg yolk-like part of your blood. That yellow part is plasma. That plasma is the concentration in your blood of your immune response. We talk about antibodies, and we've been talking a lot about antibodies that are used to test for COVID if you've had it, and also, in this case, antibodies that people who have had the coronavirus develop, and then we think, based on a century almost of knowledge that if somebody has the disease and develops immunity to it, that there might be some utility in transfusing that patient's blood that had the disease into someone else who's fighting the disease but has not developed immunity. And again, just for a medical reminder, you develop immunity weeks after you have the infection. 
So the idea is that you've got people who have donated blood, who have fought the infection, are healthy and alive, have that immune kind of those cells in their plasma, and then we give it to somebody who has not built immunity and is actually struggling with surviving through COVID. So that is the kind of trillion dollar question is could that convalescent plasma be a game changer? It is. It has been tried, by the way, in almost every other viral illness, including some promising studies with the Ebola virus. However, it, it hasn't had to be used to the scale that COVID has been. And so that, but people have thought, and interestingly enough, just another little factoid for the skullduggery listeners, there is no, man, most of these drugs, we've been talking about pharma, you know, FDA approval processes, most of them come from a manufacturer, a drug company. This is not a drug company. It's basically like the Red Cross blood bank and, you know, the Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins in the United States and then universities around the world. And that creates a little bit of a, I think that's created a little more of that confusion that's led to this FDA, NIH. Well, it also means that scaling up production depends on people donating their antibody-rich blood. My understanding is, I mean, you know, part of the reason we have such an elaborate regulatory process is because we want to ensure efficacy, but also we want to make sure that these drugs and these treatments are safe. But I was under the impression that plasma treatment is, even if we don't know all the answers about efficacy, that there is not a much of a health risk associated with giving people plasma. Is Am I wrong about that? No, that's correct. I think, and, and so let's just, you, you hit on like what basically kind of the trials or at least these studies try to do. And by the way, this is true with vaccines. And this is also true with any other treatment, forget COVID, but any other treatment you really look first for safety. So you just wanna make sure you're doing no harm. That's like the first gauntlet to think about. They have done that with plasma. There is some debate both on med Twitter and amongst scholars, like is the data that's out there, does it seem safe? If you talk to any kind of infectious disease or scientist who looks at trials, they will tell you the data is overwhelming that this is safe. The debate has been about what we call the efficacy or how effective the drug is in people who get it versus people who do not. And the classic way, if you're a purist, the classic way to really think about efficacy is through randomized controlled trials. It's, it's what you'll hear all of us tell you we need in order to make a decision to prescribe something for a patient. But these are not classic times. And I think you're seeing, we've now had over 90,000 patients that have been given this convalescent plasma. It hasn't been done in a pretty, you know, purist. It hasn't been done in what I would say, if you had someone on this podcast that talked to you about classic randomized controlled trials, this is not what you know Mayo Clinic and other researchers have done. This was convenience. We are trying to get as many Americans to donate blood, and we are going to take that blood and safely try to see if it works. And so that's what you have. And I think this is where there is, again, I, this is one of, if I had to like offer what could have made a lot of this easier, it's not about the safety. I actually think the FDA did the right thing in offering the emergency use authorization. One could argue they should have done it weeks ago. Where this all went wrong is the lack of transparency and this inability amongst the white, first of all, the White House should never have interfered. The FDA should be left alone. It needs to be independent for the safety of Americans to make decisions that we can rely on. It was the interference by not just the politicals in the government, 
but also the other agencies, the NIH, the New York Times article that talked about them trying to stop this. That is not the way the FDA does business. I've overseen two FDA reauthorizations and work now with five FDA commissioners. That is the job of the FDA commissioner is to keep the noise out. And that has not been done in this case. So I was listening to CNN last night in the aftermath of the president's announcement. And the entire thrust of the coverage was, number one, this was an entirely political exercise by the president on the eve of the Republican convention to try to have some good news on the COVID front. And number two, that he had pressured the FDA to do this when, in fact, we hadn't had those randomized studies that are the uh, gold standard of uh, approval of any new treatment. And I guess my take is more than one thing can be true here. Yes, the president may have politicized this and wanted to find something to promote on the eve of the convention. But Also, we are, as Danny said, in the midst of an emergency, a pandemic that has killed 170,000 people. I mean, is it a bad thing for the White House to prod the FDA to approve a treatment that as long as there's doesn't seem to be any concern about safety, that it's going to harm people, why not try everything you can as quickly as you can to see what works? It seems to me that's how public health can advance, especially in an emergency. You're asking all the right questions. So I will say, like, you know, again, you kind of know I came from a Democratic background. I am taking politics out of this. It is unfortunate that somehow the actual work that's been done on convalescent plasma, the research, and the actual emergency approval has been tainted in a way to, to make it seem like the whole thing has been political. And I would hope that people listening understand the safety has been utmost kind of of the high priority. What Mayo has done and other researchers have done is absolute integrity. Is it perfect? No. But to your point, Mike, we are in a pandemic. So we're trying to, we're doing that with vaccines, by the way. I've talked about this on Skullduggery. We're doing everything in parallel, which is normally not the way we do things. So yes, you are correct that we need to have a little bit of what I would call flexibility. I think where things really went awry is what became a public Twitter battle. And by the way, also too nerdy, but worth mentioning is this is in the backdrop of 48 hours before this emergency use authorization for plasma. HHS, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, with support from the White House, stripped away the power of the FDA to have authority over lab-developed tests, like for COVID. And, And so I think what's happened is that you're seeing an interference, not the White House saying, hey, guys at the FDA, what's, what gives? When are we going to get an approval? That's very normal. But what you have here is this impression that the FDA commissioner is now somewhat compromised because of interference. The interference mm-hmm. itself or the nudging is not unusual. The interference, by the way, the emergency use authorization, just for historical context, so people don't think like, what's the FDA doing? They've gone off the rails. We have used emergency use authorization during Zika, during H1N1, during flu, like just good old fashioned flu season for flu diagnostic tests. So the use of this authority is very historical. It's this interference and what seems like political prodding. Well, let's talk about that. You mentioned uh, vaccines. So 
In the case of, of vaccines, there's a controversy brewing, which for, uh, on the one hand, there is less evidence to suggest interference. But but on the other hand, if there were interference, it would be far more troubling. And this is based on reports that um, Stephen, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, and Mark Meadows, the Chief of Staff, were up on the Hill. And there some have said that they were talking about bypassing the normal FDA approval process for a vaccine and uh, trying to get something approved by September, notably before the election, and relying, I believe, on foreign clinical trials as opposed to clinical trials here in the United States. What is your reaction to those reports? And what are the safeguards against that kind of interference, which I think legitimately would have the medical community and public health professionals extremely worried? Yeah, that's it's a great question. And I'll tell you, here's a name that's going to become a household name, Peter Marks. He is the director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, otherwise known as CBER, at the FDA. That is the center that's responsible for approval of all vaccines, blood and blood products like convalescent plasma and cell and gene therapies. So you could say, Dan and Mike, that Dr. Marks, incredibly, I, I know him, I've talked to him, he is such a smart individual, career scientist, not a political appointment. You could argue that he is trying to just wade through this to remain at the center because his most important job is going to be maintaining the integrity of the vaccine approval process. So people like Peter Marks, who I have incredible faith in, along with all the people who work for him, are wading through this thicket of political stupidity to do exactly what you're saying. Now, where could this get compromised if people like Dr. Marks are overridden, so to speak? I think that's where you could have exactly the scenario that you're describing, that if the data is not transparent. So you asked the right question. What are the safeguards Americans need to see? I need to have doctors like myself who prescribe vaccines. I need to be able to comfortably have looked at the data available that gave the FDA the authority to give me an emergency use to give a vaccine to a child, to an older adult, to an adult. I need to be able to see that data. There is still a lack of transparency around some of this data, or there's a lag about when we'll see you know, all the data. So we will need to have full access to the very data the FDA used to make this decision. That's number one. The second is going to be an, ex- an incredibly exhaustive, like outside, I would say this is one of those scenarios, Dan and Mike, where you need an outside, non-political group of people. So good luck assembling that, but I think it's important. You need kind of a amplified version of the 9-11 commission with some scientific knowledge to be able to kind of, as a valid external body, kind of say, yes, this is affirmative, that we can vaccinate 350 million Americans safely. There won't be zero risk, but we need to know that. That's number two. And then the third is going to be uh, a dialogue with the manufacturers. We're not going to have one vaccine from one manufacturer. We're likely going to have several. So we need to be able to have direct access to these manufacturers to deal with questions, issues, and adverse effects. Those three things at a minimum have to be in place, I think, for the country to feel comfortable. I like the idea of a 9-11 type commission. I think uh, Skullduggery will nominate you to be the chair of that commission, (laughs) Dr. Patel. But I've got two quick wrap-up questions uh, for you. First, do you take any comfort 
from the fact that at least in the last couple of weeks, those skyrocketing numbers we were seeing in Florida, California, Arizona, Texas, do seem to have come down a bit. And, um, you know, I guess the question is, are we over the hump? That's my first wrap up question. And then when you after you answer that, I'll give you my second. Yeah, I, I mean, here's again, I feel like I'm always the bearer of bad news, but here's some good news. I do think that you're seeing much more widespread mask mandates and compliance. And because we've got decent weather in most of the country, with exceptions of parts of the country under fire and tropical storms, you actually do have more Americans outside. And we do know, too, you know, we're learning a lot more about this virus. Masks are helpful and not giving and preventing the infection. And number two, being outdoors with circulation really matters. So yes, I am incredibly, look, we had 950 deaths yesterday. So is this good news? No, it, it's a good news, yes, but is this kind of the news that we're all hoping for to see cases as close to zero as possible? No, but it's the right direction. So I'm, I am pleased by that. Okay, and my second wrap-up question is when you were last on a couple of months ago, I asked you, was there going to be football this fall? And you said emphatically, yes. And you were talking about college football. I'm not sure your forecast is holding up uh, so well. So I want to give you a chance to revisit that question. I, I listen, I, I said, I, I recall what I said, like we need things that are very American, like football. And what I what I don't think I what I know I could not have predicted is this incredibly variable way <laughs> the leagues would approach just the leagues would approach everything from testing to isolation. And here's what I've learned now from my friends who are working on the NBA strategy, the bubble, so to speak, the MLB strategy, which obviously has not worked out that well. And the NFL strategy, which as you can, as you know, very well is not unfolding very well. And I would say that my postmortem on all of this is that testing matters, frequent testing matters and then strict adherence without having players feel like if they opt out that they have sacrificed their entire careers. And that's essentially what you saw in the NFL. You saw these young players, mostly of color, who were made to feel like they had no choice because of the financial compensation to opt in. And, and candidly, that I, I will be honest, like even if you, you know, it's like now I say, aha, of course that happened, but I can't believe that happened. I am optimistic here. You've heard it here. I am still optimistic that if you actually approach this with incredible discipline, that you could do not just what the NBA did, but you can do what South Korea did with Major League Baseball, with their version of Major League Baseball, where they actually did. Now they have fans in the stadiums. It wasn't just what I thought, where the stadiums would be empty. They have fans in the seats, and, and that it's possible. It, we just haven't made the commitment to it. I've got a very quick uh, wrap-up question, uh, and this is something that I know is of concern to a lot of people, this is something we talk about among our friends all the time, which is there, there is a apparently the first real case of reinfection, COVID reinfection coming out of Hong Kong. This is a man who was infected four and a half months ago, the first time, then returning from Spain, he was diagnosed again with COVID. They know that it's not a false negative, I think, because they sequenced the virus and they could tell that they are two different there are differences between these viruses. Apparently, what he had coming back from Spain was the European strain of it. How concerned should people be? And I guess the other kind of follow-up question to that just quickly is, 
don't all viruses, aren't people, generally speaking, um, can't they be reinfected? I mean, isn't that why we get the flu uh, shot every year? Yes. You're, uh, for the listeners, we did not pre-plan any of this, but I'm really proud of Dan's uh, public health degree by proxy. So you're 100% right. So, so just to summarize for listeners, it's the first technically confirmed case of coronavirus reinfection, which is why it's in getting a lot of attention. But here's what's important to note. Just as you said, Dan, one, this is rare. But two, it's actually not as scary as you think, because for, just to remember, the patient did not have any symptoms from the second infection. So he was asymptomatic. And now, does that mean that he could give it to other people? Yes, which is why people are scared. But actually, what happened with him is what you would want to see with immunity. To your point, Dan, you can pick up the virus again, and it won't cause serious illness. Now the critical question is, number one, how long does this immunity last? And number two, if how many people in the world do we need to get vaccinated or be infected to achieve what in healthcare we call herd immunity? And that number you know, varies from 50% to 80%. But you hit the nail on the head. I am not, I saw that news. I talked with infectious disease colleagues from around the world and they're all saying, look, it's not as bad. Like we, you know, it's real. This isn't fake reinfection. But this tells us that, yeah, the body develops some sort of immunity and that it actually might, the vaccine could work. And I think that's actually, you know, progress from a science perspective. Well, nice to end this interview on a little bit of an upbeat note. So thank you for that. And I, I was just going to add that uh, next time uh, when uh, Kavita comes on, we're going to announce her as the Yahoo News medical and sports contributor. To, um, yeah, so. people are going to love that, right? And one, yeah. and one, final, one final note for uh, our listeners is that we've asked uh, Dr. Patel to watch the Republican National Convention over the next four evenings um, and uh, specifically through a lens of these public health issues and, and health policy issues. So uh, coronavirus, you know, health insurance, Medicare, all of those kinds of issues. And uh, so look for her stories on uh, Yahoo News uh, in the coming days. And of course, Kavita, we, we will have you back on again soon to talk about it all. Thank you. All right, we now have with us Rick Tyler, veteran Republican strategist and author of the new book, Still Right. Rick, welcome to Skullduggery. I, I think it's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you still right about? Well, Still Right, which a friend of mine actually came up with, we were bantering about, you know, what, what could I call this this book and still writes as fit in so many ways because I'm a political analyst, a conservative political analyst on MSNBC's network. And as you know, the MSNBC audience tends to lean left. And because I so disagree with Trump's policies because they're inconsistent with conservative thought, everybody kept saying, well, I'm, I must have left the Republican Party and conservatism and, and all that uh, and become a leftist. And, and I like to quote you know, the songwriter Joe Walsh, uh, everybody's so different, I haven't changed. I'm exactly the same. I'm, I'm still right. And I'm still right in my ideological thinking. I think I still write in my policy beliefs, I'm still right about how the Republican Party could have gone forward. I think it's too late now. And so I've, I remain still right. Let me, Rick, let me pick up on, you know, the sort of 
one of the fundamental premises of your book, which is that Donald Trump is not a conservative. And clearly we know that he wasn't. He was pro-choice. He gave a lot of money to liberal Democrats. But for the average voter out there, why shouldn't they see him as a conservative, at least in the way he has governed? He has governed as someone who is fiercely anti-abortion. He has passed a bit, a huge tax cut. He has um, put a huge number, record number of conservative uh, judges on the bench, including two Supreme Court justices. I recognize that on issues, there are issues like trade and immigration where he's not a traditional conservative, but make the case for our listeners that he is not a conservative. Okay, well, first, conservatism is the philosophy of, of what I call ordered liberty. If you take out the ordered and just have liberty, then you're probably a libertarian, but it's, it's, it's ordered liberty. You mentioned two of the issues that are prominent in my book, in fact, chapter one is trade, because at the heart of being a human being is the ability to create. And create, being creative, as we are as humans, takes on many forms. It takes on podcasts, art, you know, uh, art music, inventions, services, goods, all these things. And we have a right to be able to try to sell those inventions and, and services to as many people as possible. And what Donald Trump has done is consistently uh, lied about the nature of trade. One, he just lied 15 minutes ago in his convention address, saying that the Chinese are buying American agricultural products. They aren't. In fact, Donald Trump has the world's largest farm aid program, which dwarfs, by the way, the GM bailout. I talk about the GM bailout because, because bailing out GM, in my opinion, was, was a bad idea because it, it's not fair to the competitors of GM who are innovating to try to create new cars. But more than that, you buy a car, your taxpayer money is going to GM, and you don't get any service or, or product in return for that. Where else is that? Where else do you, you, know, do you get that? You know, I, don't want, I don't like that restaurant. Oh, but you got to give your tax money to that restaurant. Oh, I don't like that kind of a... Uh, socks. Well, but you got to buy. You got to buy those socks, or you won't actually get the socks, but you don't have to pay them anyway. And the and the tariffs they don't go into. They, they don't come from China. There's no. We have no mechanism for taxing any other sovereign nation. They're collected at the border when they come in. And who collects them? The U.S. government from the purchaser. Which means either two things: the company is absorbing the costs and passing it on to their shareholders, and that's one form of expense, or more likely, they're passing it along to the consumer. The second on immigration is the conservative have always believed in being pro-immigration. And lately, you know, Hispanics and Muslims are getting the latest, unfortunately, and I hate to say it, bad treatment from the Americans that we have always not welcomed. We say we always welcome waves of immigrants. We don't. The Jews got a, a raw deal when they got here. The Irish got, were treated terribly. The Germans, all of them were treated terribly. And the, the big uh, lie that you keep hearing from the Trump is, you know, they're going to over, they're going to take your jobs and overwhelm your, overwhelm our culture. Well, first of all, on the jobs and prosperity, uh, immigrants have done nothing except add to the American economy. But on the culture, name for me which culture actually overwhelmed the American experience. Do we all speak Italian? Do we all worship at the temple? Are we all going to worship at the mosque? Uh, are, no. Are we all going to be home Catholic? No. It, none of these things have happened. We've never been overwhelmed. But it's deeper than that. You mentioned the judges. I can't keep track of everything you said, so remind me. The judges. Trump said he wanted conservative judges. He said he wanted conservative judges, and the Federalist Society, who produced him a list of judges, provided him with a list of Federalist judges. But now, as we learned, he didn't actually want conservative judges. What he wanted were activist judges in the Wilsonian sense. Wilson wrote an entire book about why we should have activist judges before he became president, because 
He wanted judges that were going to rule in his favor. Why would he bring his cases to the Supreme Court? Lest he thought all these guys were going to be loyal to me because I put them on the court. And it turns out they weren't loyal to him. They were loyal to the Constitution. So it's baloney that he wants constitutionalist judges. I'm glad they're there. But you know what? I looked at Neil Gorsuch and I looked at Merrick Garland, right? Okay, Merrick Garland, to remind people, was the judge that was blocked from, from getting hearings by the U.S. Senate by Mitch McConnell in the last cycle because he was nominated under Obama. And the, the right said he was the devil incarnate. Now the left said that Gorsuch was the devil incarnate, yet they both served on the D.C. court the same way Scalia and Bork did, and there wasn't a dime's worth of ideological difference between them. And guess what? There's not a dime's worth of ideological difference between Gorsuch and Garland. It's all about fundraising and raising money and, oh, scare everybody because the court is going to do these awful things. None of it's true. So, Rick, uh, tonight the Republican convention begins, and um, it is pretty remarkable that we've learned that there is no Republican Party platform this year. That doesn't surprise you. Instead, the RNC has passed a resolution that simply reiterates, I'm reading it for here, the RNC enthusiastically supports President Trump and continues to reject the policy positions of the Obama-Biden administration, as well as those espoused by the DNC, resolved that the Republican Party has and will continue to enthusiastically support the president's America First agenda. That's it. That's the platform. We support Donald Trump. What do you make of that? Well, for the first time, Trump and his supporters are actually being intellectually honest, that they actually codified into a document that all they really care about and believe is in Donald Trump. They don't believe in governing principles. They don't believe in conservatism. They don't even believe in Republicanism. And they couldn't even bring themselves to write down what it is they believe in. So they just say, we believe in Donald Trump. And then the rest of it is all anti-Democrat, anti-left, and none of their ideas. And I would just respond to saying, you know what? Owning the libs, as fun as that may be for some people, isn't actually a governing philosophy. But th- this this seems to just simply reinforce what critics have been saying for the last four years now, that the Republican Party is simply becoming an extension of Donald Trump and it's a cult. sort of just, abandoning all principles. <laughs> it's a cult. They've never had principles. They couldn't articulate a governing principle if they tried. I watched their spokespeople, what's left of them, try to go on television and actually uh, hold a coherent intellectual thought together. Truth is, Donald Trump doesn't have, he doesn't have any governing principles. He doesn't have a governing philosophy. Uh, He's just about Donald Trump. He's completely tactical. He looks at what's going to help him, you know, in the newspapers and the headlines and the the news uh, media cycle for the next 10 minutes. And that's really the extent of it. There is no plan. And you can see it in the whole response to COVID. If you take all the countries from India over to China, okay, and so that's China, India, Taiwan, Cambodia, Laos, um, Vietnam, North, South Korea, Japan, Philippines, okay, you got it. So all those, all those countries, a lot of people, it's 4.63 billion people. They've had less, they've had 120,000 deaths, all tragic, but the 120,000. We've had over 180,000, and we are 0.33 billion people, not 0.63 billion people. And you, you have to look at that and you have to say, that is a colossal mismanagement. And it's not just the deaths, it's also people's livelihoods. It's millions and millions of jobs. Donald Trump has just recently said, oh, you know, we've had the record breaking three months in job creation. Well, of course you did. You drain the lake 
and then you fill it up a quarter way and you're saying this is a great success. What about the three quarters that we lost that are not coming back, Donald? How are you going to run on that? So if he's a if he's a cult leader, but he's tossed out of office in January, what happens to his followers? Do they is it like the Wizard of Oz? You know, when when the Wicked Witch is you know finally killed and and all of a sudden they can come out and say what they really believe, or has he really transformed this party? so that for, for a long period of time, they will be followers of the Donald Trump cult. It depends on who wins the communications argument after Donald Trump is trounced on November 3rd. And there, I'll give you both versions of the argument. One version of the argument is that if only Bill Kristol and uh, Rick Wilson and Matt Lewis and Rick Tyler and Elise Jordan and Nicole Wallace, we can just go down the list, right? It's actually a pretty small list. And, you know, if they were just kept their mouths shut and just said, you know, yeah, Trump's a little quirky. Yeah, you don't like his tweets, but we were winning. And, and, and you, we're gonna have to purge you from the Republican Party. That's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument is that we shouldn't repeat this nonsense again. You can't elect someone who has no governing principles and he, will collapse the Republican Party as he had. And your establishment elected Republicans, I think will come around and, and try to distance themselves. I, I don't think they'll be very successful at doing that. But Trump will always have a following because their next move is, you know, they're gonna have, this is, this is the, you know, you guys are looking at it right here. We're, we're on our, a very narrow, we're on a narrow cast media platform. He's gonna have a narrow cast media platform and he's going to become you know, the star of his own reality TV show, and all those people will follow them. And hopefully there's enough people to reject you know, the QAnon nonsense uh, and the rest of it that um, it, it won't matter. Uh, and I look forward to that day where it doesn't actually matter. A lot of what people find most troubling about the Trump presidency is the hyper-partisanship, the personal attacks, the replacement of governing with, with pure politics. And look, you were for years um, the communications advisor consultant to Newt Gingrich, who a lot of people identify as the person more than anybody else who brought us hyperpartisanship when he became Speaker of the House in the uh, in the 1990s. It, it was his governing philosophy. And look, it helped the Republicans get back control of the House for the first time in what, 40 years. But it produced a, uh, you know, a very toxic um, level of dialogue in our politics. As you look back on your years advising Newt Gingrich, do you regret the work you did then? And do you um, see him as one of the players who helped bring us Donald Trump? Well, Michael, let me start by saying that if 70,000 people or a significant number of Obama voters had not crossed over in three swing states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and, Penn and um, Michigan, we wouldn't have Donald Trump. If we had a significant number of voters who just didn't vote in four major cities, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Milwaukee, uh, and Detroit, Donald Trump would not be president. So we can point fingers and there's plenty of blame to go around. What I would say about, about New Gingrich is I would, I would point to Newt Gingrich had an argument basically with, with the country 
that things were bad under Democrats. And, and there was some merit to that. And you can go back to the post office scandal and a lot of different, a lot of different things and the overspending and all the rest of it. And Newt was, uh, as you know, before Newt came to power, he was seen as the, you know, the crazy backbencher professor who was never going to be right about anything. And it turned out that he was right. But in 1995, Newt made an argument, and he made it with the country. He said, welfare as a program actually um, hurts people in its, in its form, the way it was currently structured. And he won that argument with the country. And he won it so decisively that 101 Democrats in the House, which was the equal number of Democrats who voted, which was the equal number of Democrats who voted for welfare reform, against 101 Democrats who voted against welfare reform. And Bill Clinton eventually signed it, and we got welfare reform. That was a cultural argument that he won. But there, right. look, no, could, no, that was that was a pure governing position, which is totally legitimate. One can yes, I, have I know, policy I know, Michael, but, differences. But what I was asking you about is the hyperpartisanship of Gingrich, the attacks on yeah, Democrats as corrupt, as as evil as people who are trying to eliminate no. America as we know it. That's that's the part that Gingrich brought us and may well have led to Donald Trump. <laughs> Except we can point to all the the hyperbole that Gingrich used both in the 1994 election and since, and that's fair game. And I think that's, uh, that's legitimate, but it doesn't not exist, Michael, on the other side either. And when, when the Republic, when the Democrats were in charge for 40 years, of course, everything was wonderful. If the, if the Republicans were just willing to accept being in, in the minority and Gingrich was the first person who said, I don't accept being in a minority. I actually want to be in a majority. Now where the Republicans failed, Michael is, once you win, you have to, and this will be the test for the Democrats going forward, because I think, I, think I think the Republicans will get wiped out in this cycle. And if the Democrats can demonstrate that they can be a stable governing majority, I think they could be in a majority for a very long time, as they were for 40 years. But we've been in this in-between where real power between Democrats and Republicans since 1994 has been in play. There hasn't been one election cycle where either a presidential race wasn't really in play, and there wasn't any election cycle where either the House, the U.S. House, or the U.S. Senate was actually in play for majority. So that tends to lead to hyperpartisanship. So don't make the case that only the Republicans were were playing unfair or being, you know, using hyperbole or saying that if you elect Democrats, the world's going to end. That happens on both sides. And I'd like to return to a place where we can have legitimate policy debates about how a free governing of people governs itself, absent all of that. That's my argument. So I'm not going to defend what the Republicans say, but I'm not going to simply accept that, that the Democrats play nice-nice and, and the Republicans always play mean. Currently, I hope the Democrat, Republicans do get wiped out, and I'm cheering for the Democrats, not because I believe in their policies. I don't. My philosophy right now is you need to kill the alligator that's closest to the boat, and the alligator that's closest to the boat is Donald J. Trump. It's not, it's not Biden, and I don't believe Biden will be an alligator if he becomes the president, which I assume that he will now. And then we can regroup and, and have policy. I, I will actively oppose many of, of Joe Biden's policy debates. But what my argument is, I'm not getting any of my policy debates now, not on immigration, not on trade, not on economics. And by the way, you mentioned um, abortion, and I forgot to bring that up, is that Planned Parenthood today receives more federal funding under Donald Trump than it has in its entire existence. 
it gets it through Medicaid. And so you can't tell me that Donald Trump has this wonderful pro-life agenda uh, when in fact in the 2016 campaign, you remember all those pro-life speeches? Yeah, me either, because there were none. And we'll see how much they focus on pro-life other than transactionally or holding Bibles upside down in front of churches that you just tear gassed your way to, uh, to see if any of this is real. Rick, I think today on Monday, a couple of dozen Republicans uh, came out and endorsed Joe Biden. Jeff Flake, the former senator from Arizona, being among the most prominent of them. There was a whole parade of Republicans speaking at the DNC, including John Kasich and Susan Molinari, who uh, gave a keynote at the 1996 Republican National Convention. First question is, is that going to make a difference in this election, a bunch of Republicans coming out and endorsing Joe Biden? And second question is, are you voting for Joe Biden? Sounds like you are. I voted for Joe Biden in the Democratic primary because here in Virginia, we don't have uh, prim- we don't have party registration. I can go in in the primary and pull either ballot. So the fir- for the first time in my life, I pulled the Democratic prim- uh, primary ballot and I voted for Joe Biden. And during the election, one of the funny stories um, during the Democratic convention last week, I-, I didn't watch Joe Biden's speech. And every time I turned into, I have since, but every time... I tuned into the Democratic convention, I would lose my resolve, right? <laughs> like, like, oh, this, I mean, it's not easy for me. I, it, I'm not, it's, it is very difficult for a conservative and a lifelong Republican to actually be considering voting for a Democratic president. That's not an easy decision for me, but it, it is what I'm going to do because I think it's in the best interest of the country right now and not necessarily in the best interest of one party over the other, because I don't think our Republican Party, the one that I knew, I think is dead and gone, and it has no relationship with the truth. I put it this way. Let's say we're watching the Super Bowl, or not the Super Bowl, let's say we're watching the World Series, okay? Let's pretend we ha- we actually could have baseball because Donald Trump managed the COVID crisis so adroitly that we could actually safely have baseball. And it's the ninth inning and the seventh game, it's all tied up. There's a guy on base, and the batter hits the ball. And it goes to center field. It takes a bounce. The shortstop throws the ball to home plate. And the call, it's, there's two outs, so the call is safe, meaning they won the game. But up on the jumbotron, we'll call that truth. We're all, we're all looking at the jumbotron. And they slow it down. And they play it in slow motion. And because it is the truth, everybody can see the truth. The runner is out. But you know what? Half the stadium thinks that's a wonderful call. And the other half thinks it's a terrible call because in our modern politics, the truth doesn't matter. It is, did the call help my team or did the call hurt my team? And that's where we are. And I think it's a really sad place to be. Doesn't it get reviewed by the MLB folks in New York? You're really testing my knowledge of baseball now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. And there is a call Don't mess based up a good on, analogy. The, uh, on the video. <laughs> but look, um, Rick, you... Um, in 2016, you were working for the Ted Cruz campaign. You were his communications guy. Oh, now, that's... Ted Cruz was mercilessly attacked by Donald Trump during that campaign. Trump even claimed that Cruz's father was somehow involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And I'm leaving aside the personal stuff that uh, Trump folks leaked to the National Enquirer. Yet, here we are, four years later, Cruz has been a down-the-line supporter 
of Donald Trump, nary a word of criticism from him on anything Trump does. How do you explain the guy you work for and wanted to put in the White House four years ago being a slavish supporter of Donald Trump today? Cowardice. He's just a coward. I mean, you could be, you can, you can, you have a choice in this world. You can be a, you can be a political leader and, and talk about things about, about principle and the things they, the way they should go. Or you can do the popular thing, which in Texas supporting Trump is a popular thing and try to hold all your supporters together because you want to maintain power. But you know what? Sometimes you just got to be willing to give up power. Sometimes you got to be willing to stand for the truth, stand for principle, even if it means losing your office. And, and I know that's up because, you know, my grandmother, we used to call her Dee Dee. She would tell me a very simple truth. She would say, she would say, Ricky, you'll always know the right thing to do because it will be the hardest thing to do. And that just always stuck with me. And yeah, it would be a very hard thing to do uh, for Cruz to point out all the times that Trump doesn't tell the truth or his policies take us in the wrong direction. It would be an easy thing to do because they're so, they're so often, but politically it'd be a hard thing to do uh, because he would rapidly lose part of his base, which, is, which are Trump supporters. But if, if you're any good at communication, which I assume you are if you became a United States senator, over time, your argument will win out because the truth will win out and people will see the logic and the rationale of the facts. And, you know, Trump wants us to believe that there are alternative realities, uh, there are alternative truths, uh, and that whataboutism is somehow uh, a morally moral equivalency argument that, that holds merit. It doesn't. Have you had a chance to make your feelings known directly to Senator Cruz? Have you had a conversation with him about this? I had a brief conversation with Senator Cruz several years ago now, uh, going on more than two years, of which he expressed, in not too many words, but basically, you know, we're just going to have to get through this, was, was the sense that I got. He knows how I feel. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I've not been shy about what I think about it. I mean, in some, in some you're, ways, you're an MSNBC analyst, for God's well, sake. So you know, I'm shocked he, he knows the, that. I'm actually shocked at the, the, the language that I used to describe the presidency of the United States, the president of the United States, because I have such respect for the presidency. And when Trump, you know, Trump addressed the delegates, you know, his opening address to the delegates uh, was just full of lies. He went on and on about mail fraud. We're going to have mail fraud. By the way, mail fraud. If Trump is successful in this argument, because there won't be mail fraud. In fact, the Trump campaign has sued several states over mail-in ballots, including Pennsylvania. And a Pennsylvania judge asked, said to them, you know, you need to provide us uh, with some examples of, of mail fraud. In a 500-plus page discovery report back to the judge, the Trump campaign couldn't cite a single instance of mail fraud. And the reason mail fraud or mail-in balloting is actually more secure and in-person voting is because they actually have to take the ballot, whether you sent it out as a universal ballot or it was applied for by application, and they actually take it, they compare the signature, they check the registration. So all this baloney about, oh, there's five addresses, that, you know, five ballots went to one house and, and they all got voted, that can't happen. That's not going to happen. So it's just all untrue. But here's the interesting thing. Let's say a bunch of Democrats lose marginally after November 5th, uh, November 3rd. Do you think the Democrats are not going to challenge races based on the fact that Donald Trump interfered in a mail-in voting election where that, where that applies? Of course they are. He's going to throw the whole election into chaos. And it will not just help him in terms of an excuse of why he lost. It's going to hurt the Republicans because 
all these ballots, all these elections may get challenged simply because Donald Trump put out the idea that fraud exists in mail-in voting, even though that their own campaign couldn't demonstrate a single instant where it does exist. It's all about voter intimidation. It's the same thing when he said the police, you know, we're going to send out sheriffs to all the voting places. Well, first of all, you know, all these people who claim they're constitutionalists, you know, who follow Trump yet, show me in the Constitution where Trump could exert any authority over local law enforcement authority. He can't. And yet that's all done on the racist notion that somehow black people will be intimidated because police officers are there. It's, it's absurd and it's racist. It's unbelievable to me. Uh, let me just one quick follow-up that you mentioned um, racism. We're obviously having this kind of racial reckoning in the country right now um, after the uh, death of uh, George Floyd and the protests. The future of the Republican Party is, you know, tied up in in these issues in, in terms of demographics, right? So we will be a majority-minority country in 2050-something the party has been relying increasingly on a diminishing number of white voters. What Donald Trump has not really helped in this regard. What would you advise conservatives to push for, to appeal to minority voters and to create a, a bigger tent for the Republican Party? Well, first, I would say you're, you're absolutely right about the party is will be defeated by math itself. That's just that's just coming. I mean, if you look at the number of, of families who are having children, Latino families, Asian families, and, and on and on, and, and the white vote is becoming a smaller and smaller vote. So you've got to find ways to appeal to your party. And I want to say this about immigration is, so I, I often give people this quiz. I say, what does Rudy Giuliani and Nancy Pelosi have in common? Now you might get this because we're talking in the context, but you know what Rudy Giuliani and Nancy Pelosi have in common? Their families come from Italy. They're both Italian-Americans, and their last names give them away. But it doesn't come to people's minds immediately. They just think politicians, they're from different parties. Maybe they grew up in the Northeast. They're about the same age. And, I, and people often say to me, I give up. What is it? They're Italian-American. Oh, I should have got that. Well, one day, I'll, I'll mention the names Rodriguez and Hernandez, and I'll ask you to guess, and people will say, I give up. What is it? Well, they're both Hispanic names. Oh, I should have got that. because. We've said this about, the Americans have said this about all of these waves of immigrants that have come to come into the country, that we're going to get overwhelmed, that we're going to lose our job. And none of it's true. It's just fear mongering. And so here's our party, our, our former party, the Republican Party, who was, give them a little credit, was trying to reach out to minority communities. Now, what would I say to minority communities to attract them to the conservative philosophy? I'd say a lot. One is, if you look at Hispanic workers today and so people see them I, I, like they're not they work in the, the low-wage hispanic workers not all of them don't misunderstand but a lot of low-wage first-generation hispanic workers they work in fast food they work in kitchens they work in landscaping and they work in lots of those types of jobs delivery service they're the people who are bringing you know your amazon they're driving the amazon trucks uh, on and on but guess what their children are going to be doctors lawyers and God forbid, congressman. And that's because culturally, they understand that if you work hard and play by the rules, that you will get ahead, that you can get ahead. And I think the conservatives have a, have a message for that, that we don't teach prosperity in this country the way, you know, Dave Ramsey has a very successful radio program. And Dave Ramsey originally 
tried to go out and sell his radio program. No one to buy it. So he decided to fund it himself. Now he owns the whole thing lock, stock, and barrel. And his whole premise is, I'm going to teach people how to get out of debt, how to manage their money, and how to become prosperous. And he has millions of people who follow him. We need to teach people, you don't need to be poor all your life. You, you can, and people say, I, I discuss it on Twitter all the time with my followers. I, I can't invest money. You can't? Why not? Because I don't have any disposable income. I have nothing to invest. I say, do you go to Starbucks? They say, almost every time. Yes. Do you think you can give up one latte a day? Because if you can give up one latte a day for 365 days, you will have put $1,800 into the market. Now, if you educate yourself about the market investing, your money can work for you. And so you can not have to put in your labor. This is what we should be teaching people. We don't teach people that. Uh, we, we have grievance and class warfare political arguments instead. And so if you're a Latino or Hispanic or uh, African-American and you actually want to work for yourself and learn how to put money to work for you, you can do that. That's a conservative philosophy. If you want to, you know, just blame your current status on, on rich people, you know, someone yelled at me the other day and said, well, look at Jeff Bezos, look at all the money he has. Why does he have all the money? And I said, well, because he invented the greatest retail distribution delivery system in the world, and you didn't. Now, we can argue about what Amazon's good points are and what their bad points are, but guess what? Everybody who buys from Amazon doesn't do so in a compulsory way. They buy from Amazon because they choose to, and that's the whole nature of the free market. Every single transaction, billions of them every day in the aggregate, is all about free will. It's convincing people to part with their dollars to buy a service and please buy mine because it's better than the others. And why is it better? Well, I'd have to find out. And so when you have information, the access to real cost and uh, the ability to distribute, which is truer today than it's ever been in human history, we have a message for you, a conservative message, where, which, which is self-reliance. But you know what, I'll say this, which is where the conservatives fall down. There are people who will always be reliant and they get lost in the system. Because they're actually, there are a lot of people, they're just not even competent enough to help themselves. And we conservatives have to talk about those people as well. There are people that my wife and I help because they can't help themselves. And they're not going to get better. They're not going to get better. They're going to be dependent on people their entire lives. And I always say, if, just, if half of America just helped one person, which is a huge statistic, right? You really only need about 5%, which is the standard volunteer rate anyway to actually go out and just help one other person. There would be so much less need in the country. Now, I'm not advocating getting rid of any welfare program or any government program, but just having people say, you know what, it's my responsibility too. It's not the government's responsibility. It's my responsibility. I should go out and help just one person. Is that really so hard? Hey, Rick, uh, just to wrap up here, uh, what are you expecting from the Republican convention this week? And where do you think the race stands a week from now. It was a dark and stormy night. Um, it, I think you're going to, I mean, all, all the, I, I thought about this a lot, Michael, and, and the only thing that I understand is that what the Republicans need a message to run on. They had a message. It was, a, it was the economy. It was the greatest economy in the world. And that was true. Of course, it's been true since 1880. Every president since Warren Harding could say, I've had the greatest economy in the world since we overtook the British in the greatest economy in the world. Right. So that's a little bit of I don't think Herbert Hoover could credibly make that argument. <laughs> Actually, ahead. he could. As 
Herbert Hoover could make the argument that he had the largest economy in the world. As bad as it was, it was bigger than everybody else's. So every president since Warren Harding could say that I've got the greatest economy in the world. They had the greatest economy. They had the lowest unemployment. They had okay GDP numbers. They were kind of weak and mealy, actually. But now they don't. So all they, what they need to do is to make this a choice election. And in order to do that, because people are not choosing Donald Trump, they have to convince people not to choose Joe Biden. So all they can do is attack Joe Biden and tell me, you know, we're going to turn this into a, we'll be a communist country, you know, within the first five weeks. They're going to come and take away my AR-15. They're going to come and take away all my, all my ammo, all my guns. What else are they going to, oh, I, I won't be able to pray to God anymore. That'll be out. I won't be able to go to church anymore. Oh my gosh. And Christmas is going to be gone. I mean, that's what you're going to hear from the, all this nonsense from the Democratic Party. And where does the race stand a week from now? You know, Trump could possibly get a bump. I find it hard to believe because, you know, he's already been he's already addressed the convention once. He's going to address it four days in a row. Do people really want to hear from Donald Trump that much? And look, all the conventional metrics that we had to throw away in 2016 because they didn't apply because for most people, he was an unknown unknown or he was a known unknown. Now he's a known known. He's not a successful businessman. He's a horrible manager. He can't unify the country. He has no leadership skills. He has no historical perspective. He doesn't understand the Constitution. He doesn't understand limits on power. He doesn't even understand politics. All he does is, is understand raw division. And so what are they going to do? Four more years of what? Four more years of debt, deficit spending, lying to the American people, uh, tens of hundreds of thousands of more COVID deaths, uh, loss of our international standing on the world stage. I mean, four more years of what? I don't know. All right. Well, Rick Tyler, I thank you for joining us, and we will um, be checking back with you in a few months to see if I'll you are still right. <laughs> but thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys.